Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Be Kind, Be Generous, Be Tenderhearted, and was given by Rick Lewis in Prescott, Arizona on January 25th, 2020. Rick provides inspirational presentations for conferences, association gatherings, and events. He has been deeply involved in practice in spiritual communities and is author of Seven Rules You Were Born to Break, You Have the Right to Remain Silent, and The Perfection of Nothing. Rick Lewis. So the reason I came up with this title is because I want to learn something about kindness. And the background of where this title came from, a little bit of a backstory to it. So I have a mother. Does everybody else have a mother? <laughs> Just want to make sure I'm not on my own in that. So I have a mother. She's 82 years old, 83 years old. Her name is Nancy. And um, when I was about 15, I got deeply interested in spiritual stuff. Like I just started suddenly reading Eastern philosophy and for whatever reason, it actually started with some Christian folks. I just started reading a lot and I was very, very curious and I actually started attending churches in my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, which is in the Bible Belt of the U.S. So I went to some Baptist churches and Methodists and Lutheran and Episcopal, but then I got into sort of the East, some of the Eastern philosophy stuff, which really was very intriguing to me. And my mother, who had never much delved into that, my, my parents are, you know, they're kind of wellness people, or they were, were up to that point, sort of soft environmental, be healthy, exercise sort of wellness folks. So I started getting into this stuff, and then within a few years... I did a lot of, was doing a lot of theater uh, through high school, and then I toured with a touring musical, uh, a Broadway touring musical. And I went back to Little Rock to my folks' house, and my mom had a book group of these women who would meet. And one of the women had picked up a book that she started, and she went, this is not for me. And it was a book by Osho Rajneesh, by Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, called The Mustard Seed. So she started this book and she went, this isn't my thing. But she knew I had been reading this kind of stuff because she was sort of a family friend. And she said, she handed it to me and she said, would you, you know, would you be interested in this book? And I said, sure. So I took the book. I went into my room. I started it, and I did not put that book down until I was, I had read it. It was just, I would, I like fell into this book. It completely took me in. And so I, I absorbed this whole book, and it so spoke to something I wanted. And I couldn't, at that time, I wouldn't have been able to say what that was, what my hunger was. But it touched something that was so real to me. It just it woke, it woke something up inside of me. So I got to the end of the book, and then it said, um, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh is... Uh, Indian, blah, 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 little history on him. And um, he lives and works in Pune, India. I read that and I said to myself, I'm going to India. That was my response to that. At that time, because I was a, a performer, an entertainer, so I had been, um, at that point, I was a clown. I was working as a clown for parties and events. And I had like five or six months of bookings. I had an apartment. I had a car. I had my whole little life. 
And I knew I was going to have to get rid of all of this, cancel it all, and I'm going to India. So I told this to my parents, my mom, and she turned white as a sheet. And it was very, that was very hard news for her. She was very worried for me. She didn't know what was going on or what had come over me. So there was, there are many stories and tales to how I then found out that Rajneesh was actually no longer in India. Mm -hmm. I actually, I subletted my apartment. I canceled all my, my jobs and I opened a telephone book and there are about 40 travel agencies because then they didn't have online travel bookings. So I went in to I just open the yellow pages, uh, travel agency. I pick one. I, I drive to the place and I go to the travel agency and I go to the receptionist at the front and I say, I need to buy a ticket to India. And the receptionist goes, okay, just go back there and see the woman at the last desk. So I'm walking through these rows of travel agents. There's one travel agency and there are 20 agents in this one agency and I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I walk all the way down to the end and I sit down and the woman says, can I help you? And I say, I need a ticket to go to Pune, India. And she looks at me and says, are you going to see Bhagwan? <laughs> this is in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was one of two sannyasins in the entire state of Arkansas. And she happened to know that he was no longer in India. He had just, just moved to Oregon. He'd been there a month. Wow. So had I not run into her, I would have been an Indian who knows, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I, who knows what would have happened. So that led into, so I have my whole kind of thing got rerouted and redirected, but I wound up, um, it was sort of an entry point into the spiritual path, which was very sort of radical and very, it was like me responding to uh, a, a recognition of something that was alive and wakeful and real. That's the only way I, those are the words that I would describe it at this point. And it was very shocking to my parents and my mother. My father is very logical. He's very, okay, well, let's think about this. Is this, you know, does this make sense? I, it was like, and my mom was just worried. She was scared and, and worried for me, but we're very glad I wasn't going to India. But what that did is it started into, so I started doing things locally. I eventually did wind up going to Oregon. So there were a lot of very... Uh, unconventional things that happened there. My mom was very concerned. So she started looking at some of the stuff I was looking at because she's like, you know, what, what is he up to? And she then started getting interested in some of the stuff I was interested in, Eastern, Eastern philosophy, and then reading some of the stuff from Osho, who was then my, my spiritual teacher, my guru. She developed this interest and we got into these conversations about what this was about. And something started like coming to life in her. Some, you know, much slower interest, but but some the similar kind of sense of a spark of something. And so over the years, I this is a span of many years, I went through being a disciple of Osho Rajneesh wearing bright orange and a sannyas necklace around my neck with his picture on it that I wore everywhere and bright orange clothes. This is while I was touring and doing theater and, you know. Um, and then I, that eventually ended. Rajneesh Puram shut down and I wound up getting introduced through a friend to uh, a man named Lee Lazowick, who some of you I'm sure have heard of, and becoming a student of Lee Lazowick. And then over the years from that, my mom actually got interested in Lee's work and she just got further and further involved reading his material, actually came to a study group that I led in Vancouver and became a student herself. So at that point, I was like, okay, I have done the, if there's anything I could possibly do to repay the fact that my mother gave birth to me on this planet, that I had some part in introducing her to a real, uh, a, an actual master, an actual, the real deal kind of help 
for her. My mom is an introvert. I am also an inner introvert, very much an introvert. When I take the introvert tests, I score like 95% on the scale of introvert. And I'm on stage all the time. Kind of a weird thing. It was a weird thing for me to discover. I always assumed I'm, you know, I'm an extroverted person, but I'm not at all. My mother is very much of an introvert. At age 81 or 80, a few years ago, she looked at her life, and she's been a student now for quite a few years of this path we call the Western Bible tradition with Lee Lazowick. And she looked at her life and how she is in her life. And what she decided is at age 80, she was done with being invisible to the world. She is seeing what's going on in the world, and she sees pain and suffering. And her decision was, I need to extend the kindness that I feel to other people and to continue to be under the thumb of my fear and my insecurity isn't okay with me anymore. So she set out to start training herself to make contact with people both in, in public, but you know, more so with friends and people she knew, but even in public, a lot in public, to just engage people. Um, so she's an editor. She's been an editor for 40 years or 50 years, a professional editor. And she's edited probably 70 books on the subjects of personal and professional growth. She's a very good mm-hmm. editor. And I've spent about 30 years that I've been kind of nudging her and going, when are you going to write your book, Mom? When are you going to write? Because she's, she's a very good writer. It's got a lot, of, a lot to say. But, you know, to, to this, to that, yeah, maybe one day sort of thing. Two years ago, based on her experiences, she decided now is the time for me to write about my experiences in approximately one month to two months, there's going to be a book by my 83-year-old mother that is going to be published. And the title of the book is Smiling at Strangers, How One Introvert Discovered the Power of Being Kind. And her book is full of stories about her coming up against her, I don't want to, I'm afraid, (laughs) I just want to be invisible, I don't want to say anything, and, and training herself to step over that personal rule out of that prison and engage with people and what she has gotten back in response, which is absolutely, and she... So the book is just full of story after story. And there's some very good sort of dharma in there, too. It's not like Buddhist dharma. It's not Eastern dharma. It's not. It's just, it's like human dharma. It's about what connection with other people is really about and what are the mechanics that separate us and cause us to continue to separate ourselves from other people and keep ourselves safe and in our comfort zone. (laughs) She asked me to help her with this book. And so, I'm, you know, sure. And I'm looking at her book and I'm like, where did my mom go? Where did this person go? Because she's, she's now doing something that is so the implications of her actions that she's recorded. They're not just in the realm of personal practice the roots of it extend way back in my family. So this is a familial pattern to be hmm. back here. You know, we don't, you know, we're, we're decent people. We're kind. I mean, my father's very outgoing, actually, but, but my mom is not at all. And she's like broken this rule 
and written about it. And then, sorry, it's the first time I've talked about this, but the impact on me, I found myself in stores just talking to people and just having these conversations that I never have had before because underneath what I learned from her is people aren't safe, so keep to yourself. And over the top of my feeling scared and unsafe to engage with people, I created this whole performer act and this whole... You know, it's been very useful. I'm, I can be useful as a presenter and, and a performer, so it's not like I'm not ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what I, what I got is I had been doing what she showed me from very early in my life, how she was, and that she, she broke this rule. She released something in our entire family system that gave me permission to start being with people in a, in a different way. And I've just found it so, it's like such a relief in my body. It's been so nurturing and such a joy to be able to actually just have these connections with people that are different from, it's not me on stage. And I'm, I, 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 keep, I have kept myself in that position as a defensive measure. And now I get to be a fellow with people, which is just... So I'm so grateful to her. And so I'm in this position now where I'm just, you know, I've just said to her, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I have some knowledge about business and writing, publication. So I'm like help, helping her. And I'm doing a lot of work for her. And she's like, oh, my God, you're doing so much work. I mean, are you kidding? Like, Senator, this is like I'm, I'm riding on your, your coattails here. This is like this is feeding me so deeply. We talk about kind or being kind because I, I don't know where this quote comes from, but it's something like we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Mm. Ever heard that quote? We judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. And so for many of us, we're very kind people inside. And externally, that kindness doesn't always make it, doesn't always reach out there because uh, to whatever degree we have, you know, defenses or fears. <clears throat> And there's some mechanics involved with, like at heart, what I think you know, many of you probably have come to the same conclusion. My, the conclusion I've come to is most people are really good people. They're kind people at heart. They're just, there are a lot of really good people in the world. And you look at the people who are running the world and you're like, what the hell? How did they, <laughs> why? How and why did they get there? <laughs> when they do not represent the majority, not even close to it. People are good people. And yet, many of us, I think, have a lot of good-heartedness, a lot of kindness that's locked up internally that doesn't, that we don't share. And the book is around some of those mechanics about how do we practice, how do we risk and how do we stretch ourselves outside of a comfort zone so we can actually embody and be the person we intend to be on the inside? So one of the things that's been most deeply impactful to me are her stories. When we hear stories, the specifics, like the actual, you're picturing places, and a lot of her stories are about being in checkout lines or stores or at the post office. And so what I find happening is because she's describing these incidents, when I'm there in these locations, her stories are coming to mind. And so it's like stories rule. Stories are just such a fantastic way of communing and being with each other and sharing and supporting each other. So here's a story that she tells she lives in Bellingham, Washington. 
She says, the downtown Saturday Farmer's Market opens at 10 a.m. I usually get there early to get a parking spot in a nearby lot that charges during the week, but not on weekends. Unfortunately, the sign giving rates and instructions for how to pay doesn't make clear that the rates are not in effect Monday through Friday <laughs> only. This is a problem for people unfamiliar with the lot. Bellingham gets a lot of summer tourists, and when I arrive there, and when I arrive, there's almost always someone, often several someones, standing beneath the sign, credit card in hand, trying to figure out how to pay. Before I head for the market a block away, I make a stop to tell the befuddled shoppers that Saturdays are free. The response is always a degree of gratitude, more appropriate to having handed the person a winning lottery ticket <laughs> than saving them a parking fee. And the book is full of this. It's like nuclear energy comes from splitting the smallest known particle there is. And this huge amount of energy is released. It's like, it's so simple to be kind, just to, to do a little bit of kindness. And yet what it liberates and what it does, the energy that's produced is, is so tremendous. Sometimes I think I should just bring a folding chair and a book and spend Saturday mornings sitting next to the parking sign, freeing shoppers from the anxiety of not being able to figure out how to pay, but not wanting to go off without paying and getting a parking ticket. Typically, after garnering thanks from puzzled parkers, I entered the market in high spirits, which are quickly deflated when I'm confronted by dozens of displays of local produce and products, ranging from t-shirts and pottery to high-end jewelry and clothing. The merchants sit beside their wares, keeping an eye out for prospective customers. I'm reluctant to stop or even to make eye contact and offer a smile or greeting if I'm not planning on buying anything. And I most often find myself proceeding along the aisles to the bread stand, the produce peddler, or the egg lady with eyes straight ahead, focused on what I'm there to buy. It's a perfect example of allowing a story, parentheses, if I stop to look and don't buy anything, I'll offend the vendor, mm -hmm. to co-opt my attention and create anxiety and self-consciousness. The result is that I've taken my attention offline and I'm not present to opportunities for connection and service. Such was the case when one morning I stopped at a booth to get coffee. I ordered a medium cup. The price was $2.25. I handed the young woman behind the counter two $1 bills in what I thought was a quarter, but was actually a nickel. When she brought it to my attention, I gave her a third dollar instead. As she handed me my change, she smiled and said, now you have three quarters. As I stepped aside to put the change in my wallet, the woman who had been behind me in line took my place and asked if she could get a smaller cup since she only had $2. It wasn't until I'd pocketed my three quarters and walked away that it occurred to me that if I'd been present in the space, instead of stuck in my head, I would have taken one of my three quarters and offered it to her so she could get the larger cup of coffee. What happens next when opportunities such as this are missed is crucial. Do I add another brick to the negative story I've built about myself? I'm the person who's so self-involved, I'm not present to make connections and be of service, or live and learn, so I'm better prepared for the next opportunity. One week ago, I was in the Paulden Post Office. There was a long lineup of people waiting for packages. And I'm standing there, and when I get to the next in line, the queue, and a woman with like a, th uh, probably a three-year-old, two or three-year-old child is waiting to pick up a package. And she's been, she's been in this line for like 20 minutes. She gets to the front. The woman goes, the postal clerk goes to search for the package. And she's back there quite a while, sort of pawing through stuff. She finally brings the package out and she says, she hands the package and says, oh, they didn't put enough postage on it. There's postage due. It says it'll be like $5 and some amount of cents. The woman's standing there. She's got the kid. And the, the boy, the little kid, has just been kind of got these little sparkle shoes that are lighting up. And I'm just kind of looking at them. But, you know, kind of doing what I usually do, sort of keep to myself. And so the woman, she's clearly not well-to-do, 
she goes through her purse and she's got like a couple of bucks. That's it. She does not have the money. And so she's looking for a minute through her purse and she finally says, oh, okay, um, I'll have to come back. I opened my wallet and I came, I said, do you want the money to get the package now? And she just looked at me. She's like, are you sure? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm sure. It's really not a problem. And I handed her a $5 bill. And she paid for her package. And this little kid just lit up. He comes right over to me and he was looking at me. He's like, thank you so much. Thank you. That's really, you know, he, just this, this little kid. And he was so, he, he just got the, I don't know why he seemed too little even to kind of register that to me, but it really made an impact on him. Maybe because it made such an impact on his mom. But the reason I did that was because of this story that's in the book. An actual story about someone was a little short of money, had I been present. By telling the story, she made it happen somewhere else. She, she lives in Bellingham, Washington. And she was like, well, you know, I've written this book. What do I do with it now? How do I get any attention for a book? And it was this, you know, number of just stories. And I said, well, why don't you just make it a local project? Because these, all these stories happened in Bellingham. Why don't you just write the places in? Because people will recognize them. It'll be of interest to people who actually live in town. So... She did that, and then it was this whole idea that she was just going to go to, there's a local bookstore there, and she's going to print copies and sell them to people local in Bellingham. And then she's like, this is sort of like, I feel like I have a mission. Like, I want Bellingham to be a kinder, a kinder place. And I want to use this book as a way to just enroll people in being kinder. And then we started, so then we're kicking around ideas, and I said, you could have kindness circles where people get together to just talk about their attempts to be kind and their stories of, she's like, oh, that could be really cool. So she's got this other book group that she meets with, and she told them about the book and the, and the kind of, and it's just like, people are like lined up behind her going, we want on board with this. How can we help you? She's got so many people saying, we want to help you with this. How can we help? So she's written this book. And the mayor of, this, of the town, new mayor just came in. This new mayor comes in. And the first thing this mayor does is proclaim Be Kind Month in Bellingham, which is coming up. I mean, it's just like this. It's this, and so that's just like the beginning of all of these things that are lining up for her. And there's so much, there's so much unkindness in traditional Dharma, the loving kindness in the Buddhist tradition, and pretty much any spiritual tradition you touch has got teaching on the importance, the fundamental importance of kindness in relationship to the illusion of separation, which is the, the fundamental knot, the, the challenge we face as spiritual beings and reconnecting to what the path is really about. And it's interesting what that's saying, you know, that joke. The, seek, the key to happiness is to lower your expectations. A little lower. No, not quite. <laughs> there you go. But in actuality, the secret... To happiness, or we could say the secret to kindness, it seems to me, is actually completely eliminating expectations. Because it's only in that space of being completely open to others without an expectation of, I mean, I, I don't, I'm assuming it's this way for you, but for me, I spend all day long looking at people and having a judgment about how they should act, what they should say, how they should be, and how they're doing it wrong, and how they could do it better, and how it's not the way I would do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's just like always a background thing. 
And one facet of kindness is attention. The ability to place attention on a living thing is an act of kindness. If you don't have some degree of control over your attention, your ability to be kind in that manner is greatly reduced. Everything needs attention. Living things require attention. And when you provide spacious attention, open, unconditional attention to another being, it is deeply, deeply feeding to another person. So in one way, the practice of self-observation, disidentification with mind stream, the ability to stay present with others without jumping on the bandwagon of your, of your thoughts about how it should be different. I mean, the thing, okay, here's another, here's another quote from Nancy's book. She says, a sense of humor is a gift from the gods. It's probably the single most valuable attribute, attribute we possess for neutralizing our fear of engaging one another. If we were willing and able to see the absurdity of the situation we all find ourselves in as cognizant animals on a rotating rock floating in an incomprehensible vastness of space, we do the only reasonable thing, look at each other, laugh, and hug strangers no more in a very strange land. Why I love meditation is because to be able to rest for a short period of time in a position where I don't need to know, where I don't have to have it figured out and have to have the answers is a, a great relief. And of course, a joy and feels very, um, feels like coming home. But not only do we, in what we would call kind of sleep or unconsciousness, walk around pretending that we know what this is. I know where I am. I know what's, <laughs> I know what's going on working on the earth. Yeah, and we've got Republicans and Democrats, and my car's got to go in for servicing tomorrow, and Whatever our, our story or circumstances are, we live in this bubble of, I know what this is, but it's completely based on nothing. It's completely based on, com, un, there's no foundation to that knowing. I remember da, reading Da Frijan one time, he said, so say, ask yourself what something is, and then provide an answer. And when you provide that answer, then ask what that is. And provide an answer. And when you keep doing that, you realize you have no, there's no basis for, there's no first thing that you actually know. It's same with where, where something is. It's always in reference to something else. And so not only do we pretend to know what this is, we then pretend to know what it should be. So we've got the next thing, you know, Damn it, should have been sunny today. Weatherman said that. Or darn it, so-and-so should have won that election. Or, And then we live in this suffering, this completely self-created suffering of thinking we know what is and then we know how things should go. If it were right, if I were general manager of the universe, this is how it would go. So, so stories, what I want to do is come up with, so the, the first thing I'd like to talk about is if you were going to have a kindness circle that would produce the results or the mood that I'm describing, what would be some basic ground rules or instructions or suggestions for the group to follow that would help hold and create a mood in a container where useful exchanges could occur. Should it be one round of everyone having an opportunity to tell, maybe start with stories of kindnesses received, mm -hmm. and then go around and kindnesses given after that? What do you think? I like the receiving part of it better. I think it should, <laughs> I think it should be optional. You no, know, yeah, you're not telling somebody 
whatever they feel comes from the heart, whatever they want to put on the board, you know. Like for myself, if I was to put something on it, I think the, the act of kindness would be, uh, so it wouldn't be self-serving. You know, the, kind, the kindness wouldn't be about me helping you oh, out. Right, not, not to boost yourself up. Exactly. Like, oh, look at what I did, look what I did. Yeah. And yeah. just what you received from mm -hmm. somebody. Because in order than... for me to be kind to somebody or to help somebody without it not being about me mm -hmm. happens probably once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. Because really, I always have an angle. This is, this, this is very important, what you're bringing up. This very, very important point, which I think belongs in a kindness circle discussion. So the question then is, should one not do an act of kindness if there is, they're feeling there's something in it for them? Or does an act of kindness, regardless of your motivations, like, Go for it. Like, do it no matter what. <clears throat> so I would, I would like to hear, I think hearing people talk about kindnesses they've given is also very impactful. I did an experiment once where I was, I was going to see what kindness or good that I did over a course of a week. And I found that everything I did intentionally there was always a payoff for me it, there was like no way to actually give without um you know without a kind of some sort of something coming back to me right i i can't i'm not languaging it right but you get the point there was nothing right. i could do that was actually selfless right and then i thought about it and went this is you know <laughs> At the end of the week, I was going, this is really sobering. And then as I reviewed the week, I realized the things that I did, I did do some things that were selfless, but I wasn't aware that I was doing them when I was doing them. Little things. Like somebody, the door, somebody's coming through with a door with packages, and you see they're struggling, you just instinctively jump, you know, grab the door and hold it for them. You didn't plan that. That wasn't, you know, an act of any kind. It was just sort of is spontaneous. I found that that the only, there was no self. The, the, the only kindness that I could do was when there was no self, when there was no, you know, that it just happened. It was just part of this happening. But it reminds me of another story. A lot of times I'm, I go into the supermarket, I get one or two things. And there's somebody with a whole shopping cart in front of me. And and I'm kind of like, and I'm, I'm always in a hurry. I'm very impatient. But Often enough, I find that people, you know, you know, standing behind their book and they see that I got one item, they, they let me go ahead of them. Right. This has happened, you know, right. moderately frequently. I think this idea of people telling stories <laughs> is the most feeding potential. And I'd like to just do that for a bit. Like, let people, without sure. you know, commenting um, on each other's stories... Tell a story that either you received kindness or when you gave kindness that affected you, that, that's memorable to you. When I've done the kindness thing that has meant something, it's been when it's spontaneous. Uh -huh. and, and it's reciprocal because in doing something, there's an energy that right. comes your way. Right. You don't define it, but it is reciprocal. Right. So there's another one when you do something good, something for some random act of kindness to somebody, and they don't know it. Oh. And they don't, you know, you know, they they're not aware of, you know, they just take it as part of the way life should be or something. And that's a good one for me. Like I'm. I seem to have some programming about being a Boy Scout. Like some Boy Scout programming that, and I look for this stuff and it's kind of like, I don't know that it's how real it is my, my random acts of kindness because I've got this program in me that says you should be this way. So it gets tricky and, and useful when it's tricky because you learn about yourself. 
I was part of a group for several months, and I remember there was a girl that was sharing, and it was just about something. She had a little bit of distress in her story. And um, when she was through speaking, I jumped right in. I was going to be the savior and say, this is what you need to do to fix this problem. And the facilitator cut me off the pass completely and said, that's not how you come into this group. She asked me, what is this girl feeling at the time? And so I just sat there and started thinking about it. And then the facilitator said to me, think about a time when you were feeling like this. That's what she wants to hear. And so that little jam, that little jewel of information for me was, to me, an act of kindness. Because I've never forgotten it. Wow, cool. It's, it's not correcting. That's kind of how I look at it. Not correcting somebody. Their story's okay. I'm not here to correct right. you. But I'm here to show you that right. I, I have a similar experience just like you. I'd like you to hear it. Right. I, I, was, I used to go to a Buddhist temple down in Tucson, and they were telling me, <clears throat> um, you help somebody act of kindness, you don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't accumulate. It's not. A, does it's not a virtuous act, and it doesn't accumulate merit. Mm-hmm. I find that so hard. Harder <coughs> for me to receive kindness than to do it. I do not want any. I do don't want. Maybe it's a male thing. I don't want to be helped. So I was thinking, people who who the people who need help are really being kind to the to whoever helps them because they're willing to receive it. I know I'm like so resistant. I can do it myself. But that, that's another spin on it. The, the greater kindness is the person who received, who's willing to let you not be so proud. Yes. Gosh, I haven't thought about this in years. <laughs> but uh, it must have been in about the sixth grade. I was in the Boy Scouts and um, I was under a lot of pressure at home. And at school, it was pretty, it was rough. Kids were pretty mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting some merit badges. So, you know, you have a, 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 some counselors to choose from. I think that that's what you call them. But this guy was 80 years old. And I went to see him for nature and astronomy and maybe one or two other things. But um, he never said anything about what was going on for me. Of course, I, would, I, I could never speak about what was happening, but he must have been able to see it. And he just helped me, you know. I just brought in leaves. I studied about different kinds of trees. And he just, like, was just so kind to me hmm. that it, it really made an impression. It was a, a, a sanctuary for me. Hmm. And I think I would just like to honor his name. I mean, Nathan Jerlin, I remember him. Mm-hmm. He was 80 years old mm-hmm. or so. And uh, never saw him again after mm-hmm. getting a couple of badges. Thank you. A lot of that, there's stories in the book, and Nancy talks about her, how she has to get over the fact, like if she smiles at a stranger and doesn't get a smile back, what does that do to her? That's what she fears. But she talks about how she gets through to the point where she's able to do that, smile at someone, and but it took, that wasn't where she started. She had to actually get out of that comfort zone and be willing to extend and then self-observe and realize the way I feel when I extend kindness, even if it isn't received or acknowledged, it, it, it's important. It's something, it still does something in the whole atmosphere that's important to me. What I do for a living in my corporate presentations is I pose as a waiter. The guests don't know that I'm not one of the servers at a conference center. I pose as a waiter who gets more and more inept, clumsy, (laughs) and eccentric over the course of the meal. So by the end of the meal, people are in these different camps. Some people want me fired immediately. Other people are just trying to ignore me and hope that I go away. And other people want to take me home and give me a safe place to stay where I won't hurt myself. (laughs) So you have this full range of human responses. So my job, my job, because then I do a keynote, which is based on what do you do in challenging circumstances when things don't go as planned. It's a whole piece of theater. So 
I was doing this one time at a food service organization. There were 500 food service leaders. So everything I was doing, I couldn't make the slightest, you know, off-center step with the service without every head of the table going like this. And I had people more disgruntled and pissed off with me. These are food service people, hospitality people. So as everybody, there's like, you know, 400 people in this ballroom and people are getting more and more upset and annoyed, except for this one man at a table in the back of the room. This one, this man at the back of the room, I go to the table and I start my usual thing where I'm, you know, I know people are predictable. I know when I do this, they're going to, they're going to go this way and they're going to get annoyed. But this one guy, he goes the other direction. Uh, and I wear a name, a fake name tag I get from the hotel. And so I had a, this name tag on that said Malcolm. And he just looks up at me after I stick my arm right in front of his face to pour water from a height of about three feet. <laughs> and everyone else at the table. And then he stops, he looks up at me, and he looks at my name tag, uses my name, and he says, Malcolm, thanks for taking such good care of us. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. He's a southerner. He's got this thick southern accent. He's like melt, you know, melts you with just totally, authentically, deeply kind person. So he makes this comment to me, and I walk away going, I was weird. All right, and now, but my job is to go back, like, I got to get this guy, you know? So I go back, and then I drop silverware all over the floor, and I'm crawling on my hands and knees under the table to get it, and you know, and so he bends over, he puts his hand on my shoulder, he says, hey, relax, it's okay, everyone has a, has a tough day, like, don't, don't worry about it. So I kept going back to his table with more and more escalated aggravations to try and, like, you know, get him reacting, and no matter what I did, all he did in response, in equal measure, was empower me and make sure he wanted me to know that he was perfectly okay with who I was and he wanted me to feel good about who I was and the job I was doing. And I was like, I mean, by that time, I just wanted to crawl into the guy's lap and tell him who the, about the real me so he could just, you know, empower the, talk to the real person. Because I like, I want, to, I want you to know me and I want you to love me just the way you're doing right now. So he didn't, but, you know, he didn't know I was an act. So then I reveal... What I do is I, re- I go up to the front of the room and I reveal, ah, guess what? I'm your keynote speaker. Yeah. And I did my whole act. And I could see him sitting way in the back just with this kind of sober expression on his face looking at me. And when I finish the whole, the whole evening, what always happens is the evening finishes and people go their way out of the ballroom. And I'm left there with my props, cleaning up and putting stuff away. So I'm sitting there, um, you know, putting my, my props away. The ballroom's empty. It's been empty for like 10 minutes. And I look up, and this is a big ballroom, and I look in the back door, and I see this guy walking, coming back in the door. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I wonder what he's got to say to me. He's slow. He's got this very sober expression on his face, and he walks all the way across the whole ballroom until he gets to where I am. And he pulls up a chair from one of the rounds, and he sits in front of me in the chair. This hasn't said anything yet. So I pull out a chair, and I sit in front of him, because anything he has to say, he has earned my full attention. So I sit in front of him, and he starts telling me about his kids. So he has a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, and his 14-year-old daughter, two years ago, had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. He was the executive chef at a big hotel. He quit his job because his daughter was so, uh, felt so betrayed and embittered and bewildered by this, she just wanted to give up. She didn't want to take her medication. She was depressed. And he quit his job and stayed home to, like, just be there for her and encourage her to, like, stick with the program, and at the same time, trying to take care of his 12-year-old son, be a dad, and everything else. So he's telling me this story. So then what he said, he stopped, and he said, 
when you were doing this thing, posing as a, I had no idea that you were not actually a server. He said, the last two years of my life have been the hardest two, two years of my entire life. And I've never had more doubts about myself, my abilities as a father and a person. But because of what you did, I got to see that who I am is a good person. And by that time, he was just weeping. He was just tears rolling down his cheeks mm-hmm. and on his suit. And I was like, opened me right up. I was just like, oh, my God. So this guy had, in his act of kindness, wound up reflecting back to himself his own merit, his value as an individual. And I, that is one of the most, in, in, in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people I've done this for, that story stands out mm-hmm. to this day for me that this, this man, his commitment to being kind, and we were kind of talking about this earlier, I don't think it is possible to commit to kindness without it flowering internally and coming coming back because that's the nature of kindness is it reflects connection and communion and um i'll just know i'll never forget him i will never forget that man thank you very much i appreciate you being here and your contributions to the the kindness circle idea and may kindness dog you and find you <laughs> and follow you wherever you go and show up in your own spontaneous acts of creative intelligence in your life. <laughs>